0: God, if you have places that you want to send us, whether they're intense and extravagant sounding or whether they're just pretty normal, like to our neighbors and co workers, family and friends, God, I ask that we would hear you, that we would open our ears and our hearts to you, and that you would soften us, that we would be willing to respond just like we were singing. How we might be able to sing it, but putting that into action and really saying, Send me, and really responding when you call us is different than just singing it. So, God, make our lives consistent with that. that, shape us that those are the kinds of things that we would do, because we know that you love us, you want what's good for us, and you want to use us to work for good in your world as well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. They're going to get the table for me. All right, don't have to grab it. Well, good morning again. If you are visiting, if you're a little newer to Trinity, my name is Matt. Thank you, Alicia. I am one of the pastors, and I do a few different things around here, but one of my main roles is hanging out with our teenagers. I get to work with our middle schoolers and our high schoolers. And so in honor of that, I wanted to open up with a story from when I was in middle school. So it was seventh grade, and our entire class took a field trip to go whitewater rafting. And if you have never been, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. It's a good bonding experience. It's an exciting time. So we got to the river, and I got in a boat with seven other middle schoolers and one expert rafting guide, and we started to paddle down the river. And on the river, there are different places where there are rapids, the spot where it gets faster, there are some waves, it's a little choppy, there might be rocks, it's more turbulent, all all the good parts. And so we're going down the river and there's a little spot with a few little waves next to us and and the guide points it out and says, that right there is a class one level rapid. That's, That's the lowest kind. It's kind of tame. We keep going down the river, another minute or so, and he says, all right, we're coming up to one that we're actually going to hit. These waves are going to feel kind of big. You might feel like, you know, kind of ducking back and hiding in the boat, but actually paddle harder. It'll keep your balance. It'll help you not fall out of the boat. I was right up in the front. So we came. We hit two big waves in a row. The the front went like way up in the air, came down. I got soaked. It's like splashing everywhere. It was pretty fun. Kind of almost tipped to the outside, but stayed in the boat. And after it calmed back down, our guide said, that was a class three level rapid. So, you know, a little more exciting, a little more fun. We kept going down the river, and another minute or two later, he pointed up ahead and motioned over to the right, and he said, over there, what you see is a Class 6 level rapid. So he's in the back of the boat. I'm up front. I turned around, and I said, so how serious is a Class 6 one? And he replied, and he told us, well, a Class 6 is actually as high as it goes. And so that's the highest kind. And for a trip like this, those are considered mostly impossible um, because they're too dangerous for us. Now, a healthy person probably would have responded and said something like, oh wow, that sounds pretty intense. But that's not what I said. Actually, I barely let him finish his sentence before I started yelling, everybody paddle right, go right, go right, we got this. So me and my middle school crew start paddling as hard as we can to the right. Our guide is now trying to use his oar in the back of the boat like a rudder to steer us away. And he's, he's trying to scream over me at this point, don't listen to him, it's not safe. <laughs> and here's the thing, the guide was the expert. He was trained in this, he actually knew what he was talking about, and he had the experience to back it up. He also had a position of authority, he was officially in charge of the boat. But all the people in the boat were my friends. <laughs> <laughs> and they knew me, and they liked me, and for some reason they trusted me. So we kept going to the right. (laughs) Now, I don't want to leave you in too much suspense, so I will say that we paddled as hard as we could, but unfortunately, or depending how you look at it, perhaps fortunately, we got pretty far over to the right, but we didn't quite make it far enough, and we didn't get to hit the Class 6 Rapid. Now, I did get the privilege of having a one-on-one chat with our teacher about the idea of mutiny later, so (laughs) I guess you win some and you lose some. Anyway, this morning, uh, we are continuing a series we started last week called Work as Worship. And today, I want to focus on the idea of leadership. Now, some of us might be the boss, the manager, or the CEO, and some of us might have to answer to the boss, the manager, or the CEO. But no matter who you are, this message today is for everyone, because leadership is not just about having a certain position. A position or a title might give you some authority or the potential for authority, but leadership is more than authority. Leadership is influence. And before I go any further, just a reminder as well that as we go through this whole series, each of these weeks, talking about work is worship, you can think of your job or career, and a lot of you probably will, and that is great, but we are using sort of a broader word for work, this word vocation, um, which includes a combination of ideas like work, calling, responsibilities and purpose. So your work might be your job that you get paid for, but it might also be a meaningful volunteer role that you have, or the classes you're taking in the education you're working on. It could be your parenting, it might be all kinds of other roles that you have in your family, uh, in your church, in your community. So wherever you have work, a sense of calling, responsibilities, or purpose, we are gonna explore what leadership might look like for you in those areas today. As we do that, I want to check out three different passages in the Bible, and we're going to start out in the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, in a book called 1 Samuel. Um, If you want to follow along, we do have these blue Bibles right in the back of the seat in front of you. You can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's about a quarter of the way through the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 25. It is on page 234 in that blue Bible. So we will read that in a second, but I just want to pray one more time before we read from God's word. God, as we get into your word this morning, as we read from a couple different passages, we want to remember and trust that you inspired this. You led what has been written down here, and not just for the time it was written, but also to speak to us today. So so God, I just ask that whatever you want to say to us, you may want to say different things to each of us, but whatever you want to say, we ask that we would be open to hear it, and that we would be willing to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 25. I am going to start out with verses 2 through 8, but I'm going to go through a good chunk of this chapter and I'll just let you know when we move around because we'll skip parts of it. But starting 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 2 through 8. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, so he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel um, and greet him in my name and say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time, and when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you, therefore be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. All right, let's pause there. So we've got this really rich guy named Nabal, who is probably the most influential man in a pretty large area around that place. He's the head of a very big extended family, uh, much broader than the amount of family that most of us get together with regularly. He also has all kinds of workers and servants too. Now, there's a comment in the first couple of verses that says, it's sheep shearing time, and for most of us, that doesn't mean anything except they're shearing sheep. But if we were reading this when it was originally written, we would know that that also means it's harvest time. And so that's supposed to tip us off that if it's sheep shearing time, this is a time of a lot of feasting and festivities. So then we have David, and this is the guy who will become King David, um, but he's not the king yet at this point. Right now there is another man named Saul who's the king over Israel, and Saul is an evil king, and he's actually trying to kill David. So David has been on the run, He's hiding out in the wilderness near here, and he has a few hundred soldiers with him who are loyal to him. And while they're hiding out in this area, uh, they could have plundered the local people because they needed the resources, they needed the food, um, but they didn't. Instead, David and his men had been voluntarily acting as sort of unofficial security guards for Nabal's people and his flocks and his herds as they graze far away from the farm and the home where they're all centered at. So they've been protecting Nabal's workers and animals, and now it's time for the harvest. So David sends a few men over to Nabal with this message, and he says, Hey, we've been protecting your people, your resource, but we don't have much hiding out here in the wilderness. So would you return the favor and share with us something now that it's harvest time? David is asking for help. He's being really polite and humble about it. Uh, But we also want to keep in mind that they're living in a very different culture from us. Um, For them, the idea of hospitality was considered so important that it really wasn't optional. Um, it was almost, it was practically a moral obligation for someone with the resources that Nabal had to share with a stranger or a visitor if they were in need and they were in his area. So with that, let's jump back in here. We're going to read from verse 10 to 13 now. Starting at verse 10, it says, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears?'" and give it to men coming from who knows where. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So David gets a little fired up when he hears about Nabal's response, and it's not just because Nabal said no. It's a little more than that. Nabal has rejected their really important custom of hospitality. He has taken the protection that David's men offer them for granted. But he also, his whole tone is filled with contempt and insulting. And he didn't have to say it that way either. So David tells the soldiers, if they won't offer us any food, then get your swords, we're going to slaughter them and take the food. Now, one of Nabal's servants has witnessed this interaction and sees where this is going to go. So he makes a run over to Abigail and he says, hey, is there anything you can do? Because there is an attack coming in here and this is not looking good for all of us. Uh, so we're going to jump to verse 18 and then we'll read verses 23 to 27. So over in 18, it says, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sayas of roasted grain, hundred cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on the donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. So, She gets all these gifts ready, this food, um, and she heads out to meet David. and, And now we'll read what happens when she gets there. This is verse 23 now, a little farther down. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men that my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. So we're going to skip ahead again a little bit more, but she continues talking and she tells David that she believes that God is with him, that God is protecting him, that he is going to become king, even though he's in a tough spot right now. Uh, She also says that God will take care of his enemies for him. And he should hold back from taking vengeance on Nabal. Not that Nabal doesn't deserve it, but David's going to become king. And he doesn't need that kind of guilt or that kind of blemish on his character for committing unnecessary violence like that. So she says all that to David, and in verse 32, this is how he responds. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. All right, so we've got this whole story in view now, so recap on the characters. We've got Nabal, who is very wealthy. He has this powerful position as head of a huge household of extended families, of workers, of servants. Then we've got David, who doesn't have the same kind of wealth or resources. He's hiding out in the wilderness, but he is the commander of several hundred soldiers, which gives him a different kind of strength. So for different reasons, they are both in positions that give them lots of authority and lots of power. But if you read over this passage and you ask yourself the question, who shows the greatest leadership here? Or who has the most influence in the story? The answer would not be Nabal, and it would not be David. The answer would be Abigail. As a woman in that culture, Abigail doesn't have near the same status, strength, or power as Nabal and David. But leadership isn't just about having a position, a title, or authority. Leadership is about influence. Nabal acts like a self-centered,, inhospitable, inhospitable and foolish instigator. David feels taken for granted and disrespected, so he grabs the sword and gets ready for vengeance, and he makes an oath to kill every man in Nabal's household, family and business. But Abigail takes on the leadership work of being a peacemaker. She's already known for her character, even though her husband isn't, and that's probably why one of the workers knew that he could run to her in an emergency. She's not passive. She doesn't just let things happen, assuming, well, maybe there's nothing I can do about it. But she's active. She takes the initiative to come up with an alternative option. And she boldly puts herself out there going to meet this commander and his soldiers who are marching in ready for blood, and they have no prior connection to her or concern for her. You have no idea how this meeting is going to go. When Abigail meets David, she's careful to use her her influence as intentionally as she can because there are a lot of lives depending on it. She speaks with deliberate respect. She shows generosity and hospitality. She encourages David to trust God. And though it's subtle and polite, she's also pretty challenging for someone in her position speaking to David, a commander of an army here. And she challenges him not to act out of vengeance, to have better character than that. If there's no Abigail in the story, things end up going very differently. A lot of people's lives are lost or broken. But David recognizes God at work in her. He praises her for actions, and he blesses her for her good judgment in confronting his vengeful instincts and stopping him from committing this unnecessary violence. Abigail might not have had a lot of authority or power, but leadership is about influence, and she makes sure to use her influence. Sometimes I think we can get stuck thinking that we can't really be a leader or an effective leader unless we're the boss, unless we get to be in charge unless we have all the authority or the power to make the final call. Years ago, I had a mentor of mine who pointed out that there are very few people, if you just do the math, who are actually in the top position at any organization, company, or institution. And so he used to encourage me to learn how to lead up or lead from below. He would remind me that I could have an influence no matter what position I was in, I could use my influence intentionally in order to make a meaningful impact. And I'm reminded of this when I think about our youth leaders. I'm officially the youth pastor, which gives me the most authority in making the decisions and directing the programming. But I have several youth leaders working with me, and they have a lot of influence on both what we do, how we do it, and in the lives of our students. And I could you know, give you all kinds of stories or examples, but I have time for one, so I want to share that Cindy Town is one of our youth leaders that comes to mind. And if you are a parent of one of our teenagers, one of our high schoolers, you don't even need me to explain why. Uh, but Cindy understands our mission and our purpose. She sacrifices extra time and energy to invest in it. She does this with a kind of character that genuinely reflects Jesus, and her love for the other leaders and all the students is obvious and overflowing. I didn't know Cindy until a few years ago, but she's used her influence as well as you can, and so she keeps earning more influence. I don't wait to see if she has feedback anymore. I ask her for it ahead of time. I don't want to make any major decisions if I don't ask what she thinks first. And she's added multiple new layers to our ministry uh, that I hadn't thought of or didn't have time to do out of her own initiative and passion. And whenever she does, it's always fruitful. So when she asks to do something new or do things a little differently, I usually say yes. Leadership is influence. And no matter who you are and what roles and relationships you have in your life, Jesus has given each of you influence because he has meaningful ways for you to impact the people around you. And again, no matter who you are, every single one of you in this room, Jesus has given you influence because he has meaningful ways that he wants you to make an impact on the people around you. Now, if you want your influence to have that kind of meaningful impact, you need to build it on the right foundation. And so I want to open up a second passage here and look at another dimension of this. And we are going to flip all the way over towards the end of the New Testament, the other side of the Bible, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that is on page 961, I think, as I get there. Yes, it is. All right, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. But while you're flipping there, before we read this, I have two caveats on this passage. Uh, The first one is that part of this passage, this this is part of a passage that is written about the qualifications for church elders, or what we should look for in leaders within the church. So this is most specifically about leadership in the church. However, For followers of Jesus, I think this has a lot to say about our leadership in our homes, in our families, at our jobs, and out in every area of our lives outside of the church too. So don't just keep it in a box. Second caveat, Uh, in most English translations of this passage, there are several masculine pronouns added in so that this makes grammatical sense for us in our language. And there is some complexity on this topic as a whole that we do not have time to get in for today. But I do want to say that in the original Greek, this passage is written away where it could apply to men and women. So ladies, leadership is for you too. You're not getting out of this one. All right. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 4, which is just a part of this passage. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect." Now the first thing I want to point out about this passage is that there's a lot of different things touched on there, but out of that entire list, only one of those things is a skill. The rest of that is about character. Because leadership is built on character. Sometimes when we look at people in positions of authority or leaders around us, it's easy to notice how gifted they are, how productive they are, or how charming their personality is. And those things aren't necessarily bad, But when we prioritize skills over character, or results over character, or charisma over character, it doesn't usually end well. Off the top of our heads, if we grab the whiteboard from last week and did a little brainstorm, and we won't do this, but if we did, I'm sure we could name a lot of fallen leaders just from the past few years. Pastors, business leaders, politicians, people from all kinds of other industries as well, who have seen their leadership and their influence crumble because of character concerns either named in this passage or highlighted in other parts of the Bible. Things like unfaithfulness, aggressive and abusive behavior, greed, pride, hypocrisy, dishonesty, deception. We've seen so much of this, actually, that it's made us more and more anti-institutional as a culture. And what I mean by that is if you rewind 50 to 70 years ago, most people in America had a lot of trust for big organizations, big institutions, and the leaders who led them, but we don't anymore. When most of us look at authority figures, we have some amount of distrust. A lot of us feel wary or cynical about public leaders. We're not surprised when we hear about the next scandal. A few years ago, uh, before Pastor David joined our staff, we had posted for that job, and we were looking for someone to fill that position. A mutual acquaintance that knew Pastor Kirk just a little bit reached out. Um, They thought they had an idea for someone with the ministry skills skills that we were looking for. Uh, We had never heard of this person, which is totally fine. You don't always know who you're going to interview. But Pastor Kirk reached out to me first and, and asked if I had any mutual connections with this person. I didn't, so I suggested that we jump online and check out their social media pages just to get a basic idea to start off with. But as soon as we did that, there were several character concerns that popped up right away. Now, maybe this person was a really impressive preacher. Perhaps they were gifted at training small group leaders. They might have been really good at teaching Bible studies or putting on outreach events, but we have no idea because we never took it far enough to find out because there were too many red flags on character. Leadership is built on character, and that's not just true because that was a role leading in a church, but no matter where you work, what responsibilities you have, or who you are in relationships with, your character will either be the foundation of your leadership and influence, or it will be the ceiling for it. And the more authority you have, the more this matters. There's a quote that's often attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but it was actually written about Lincoln by another man named Robert Ingersoll, and it says, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Sometimes we think that we can't really lead or we can't really be an effective leader until we get more power. But when we do get more power, that's when we have to start being even more careful with our leadership. Jesus came to earth as God in human flesh, but he didn't take on a powerful position. He wasn't a high priest or part of the ruling religious council among his people. He wasn't a general in the Roman army or one of the kings that they set up to occupy one of their territories. But even without that kind of power, his character revolutionized what was valued in their culture and what we value in our culture today, too. Jesus is the reason that we even value things like empathy, service, peacemaking, humility, justice, and sacrificial love. And we may not always live these out well, but before Jesus, those weren't even always considered good or desirable character traits. Jesus cares about your character, and he wants to walk with you to help grow your character too. When Jesus came to earth, he sacrificed his life for us, he rose again, and he did this to offer us a chance to forgive us and to reconnect with God, but he also did it to invite us to be part of his mission of redemption and renewal of all of creation. He is at work bringing hope and healing to everything that has gone wrong and been affected by sin and evil, and he wants you to be part of that, but he has to build your character first so that you can have a meaningful impact impact in that work of redemption. So spend time with Jesus talking about your character, looking at your character, praying about your character. You could take several days, weeks, to slowly pray through or think through this passage. You could study the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. You might want to meditate on the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Spend time in prayer asking God if there's anything that is limiting your leadership or how growing your character could increase the impact of your influence but spend time with Jesus. Open yourself up to being changed by Jesus, and ask people that love Jesus to give you the encouragement and the challenge that you need to grow. Leadership is built on character, and Jesus walks with you to grow your character so that you can be part of his work of redemption. All right, I promised you three passages, so we got one more. Before we wrap up, we got a little time left, so we are now going to turn to Mark chapter 10. So if you flip back Backwards a little bit, a handful of pages, Mark chapter 10, I think it's on page 822 if you're in that blue Bible. Let's see if I'm right about that. Yes, because we're going to be in the second half of Mark. All right, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. All right, this takes place with Jesus and a couple of his disciples and then the rest of his core 12 disciples all talking together. So, starting off in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John, two of Jesus's 12 disciples, they come up to him with a really big question. They want to be leaders, and they want to be great, and so they basically ask, hey Jesus, when you take over the world, can we be your vice presidents? <laughs> now, There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a leader, but James and John have a broken and shallow idea of what leadership is. In fact, they've grown up under the authoritarian occupation of the Roman Empire, and as much as they despise the Roman rulers who are over them, they've accidentally learned how to think about leadership from them. So James and John are focused on what kind of position they can get. What's their title going to be? How are they going to rank compared to everybody else? How many people are they going to have authority over? It's a self-centered and self-serving way to think about leadership. And of course, we can be tempted by these things, too. We are not above that. We can think about leadership, we can even think we're thinking about leadership well, but be thinking in worldly ways without realizing that we're adopting a broken model of leadership. Maybe we're motivated to rise up in the corporate hierarchy because we want the status or the respect that comes with it. Maybe it's for power or money. Maybe we just think it'll give us more comfort, more control, or make us feel more valuable. Sometimes we might think that the results really do matter more than character, and it's okay to cut corners to get there, or the ends justify the means. But as Jesus redirects his disciples, in verse 43 he says, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. When Jesus says regarded, this word here is pejorative. It's a little bit snarky. What he's saying is, They think they're leaders, but that's not really leadership. That's just self serving and power hungry. And if anyone has a right to power, it's Jesus. If anyone has a right to authority, it's Jesus. And he could even be justified in using it all for himself. But that's not who he is, that's not what God is like. When we look at the last verse in this passage, a couple verses later in Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 45 right here, most Bible scholars would consider this to be the summary, the epitome, the center of this whole gospel. And Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's not just an inspiring quote to put on your desktop, but Jesus suffered and sacrificed himself for these disciples he was talking to. And for any of those Gentile rulers that would be willing to believe in him as well. And Jesus suffered and sacrificed himself for you and for me too. Real leadership isn't self-serving, but it's self-sacrificial. In the kingdom of God, greatness isn't measured by position and power or status and strength, but greatness is seen in sacrifice, in service, and even in suffering for others sometimes. And it's not just that these are the ethics of Jesus or that these are the values that he says are good qualities. That's true, but it's more than that. These are also some of the primary ways that Jesus brings about redemption, renewal, and healing in the world. Jesus usually doesn't choose to force things, to force change through power and control. He would rather invite change through love and sacrifice. Leadership isn't self-serving, but it's self-sacrificial. And Jesus sacrificed himself for you. So the most powerful way that you can lead others is by serving and sacrificing for them. At a former church, I was driving home from a youth retreat. Uh, We were in a big 15-passenger van. Everybody else had fallen asleep except me and one other adult who had volunteered as an extra chaperone. We were sitting up front together. Um, This man was a high-ranking executive at a well-known company, but sometimes we stereotype what kind of personality that might be. Think of this really bold and assertive and domineering type of person, and you would never know that because he was so unassuming. He was the picture of humility and gentleness. While we drove back, I asked him what his job was like and what it looked like to be successful in what he did. And when he answered, it sounded like it could have been Jesus speaking through him. He said, the way I see it, my main responsibility is to lead my team and my department as well as I can. If I can give them everything they need to be successful, then I'm doing my job well. I try to spend most of my time figuring out how I can equip and empower them the best that I can. Servant leaders don't think about how their workers can set them up for more status, for more success, what they can do to be served, but they think about how they can serve, how they can inspire, how they can equip, and how they can empower others. And this takes time, it takes energy, it takes relational investment, but these are the kind of leaders that we follow, not because we have to, but because we want to. Leadership is influence, and Jesus has given every single one of you influence because he has meaningful ways for you to impact the people around you. Leadership is built on your character, and Jesus walks with you to grow your character because he wants you to be part of his work of redemption. And leadership isn't self-serving, but it's self-sacrificial. Jesus sacrificed himself for you, he sacrificed himself for me, and the most powerful way that we can lead others is by serving and sacrificing for them too. Let's pray. God, you had more power and more authority and more control than any of us have ever experienced or could imagine. And a lot of us, when we get that, we are tempted to use it in a totally different way than you did. But you gave, you surrendered, you suffered, you sacrificed. And you didn't have to. But you love us that much and you cared about us that much. God, we thank you for the way that you approach us even though we don't deserve it. We thank you for the way that even when we offend you, turn away from you, ignore you, question you, think we know better than you, you still offer us forgiveness and grace. You delight in inviting us to heal, reconnecting with us, and helping us be transformed. And God, you also want to work in us to change and impact the world around us. So I ask uh, that you would just soften our hearts to help us hear how you want to do that and respond in your ways for your world. We pray in Jesus' name.